Blog Talk Radio.
Behind the African Journal. Behind the African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Today is Sunday, uh, June 12th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be, of course, honoring Black Music Month, uh, which has been commemorated annually since the late uh, 1970s. Also, we're going to bring you our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, in which we discuss the following dispatches uh, where the People's Republic of China has expressed its opposition to both the Ukraine war and sanctions against the Russian Federation. There are unconfirmed reports that the Ethiopian government is slated to hold secret talks with the TPLF in Tanzania. Problems are persisting in initiating a dialogue between the Sudan Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, and uh, the military regime now in power in Khartoum. And the first group of migrants from Britain to Rwanda has taken place. In the second and third hours, we further examine the history of African-American music uh, with examinations of the cultural legacies of Ruby Elsie, along uh, with Odetta Holmes. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. And, of course, with this being uh, Black Music Month, uh, we highlight uh, music uh, from uh, all parts of the African world. This uh, artist uh, also supplies us on a weekly basis with our theme song, and that's Lucky Dube from the Republic of South Africa. This is a recording uh, that was uh, taken from a live concert in Paris in 1990. Let's listen in to Lucky Dube. Are you ready down there? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm calling the king. All right. You take it, Ray. It's yours, my brother.
is a song taken from the album called Slay. And this one is a song called I'm Going Back to My Roots.
message every time and so right now I want you to listen to my message
is a song taken from an album called Slave. And so what I want you to do now, I want to see your hands up in the air like this. Everybody. Everybody, come on, let me see your hands up in the air like this. That is what we call a slave. The song is called
Thank you very much. This was a song about apartheid because I am not a politician, but I hate apartheid. Because whatever I say is what I see and what happens to me. I am not a politician, but I hate apartheid. The song I'm going to give you now, ladies and gentlemen, is a song from my album called Think About the Children. This is the one called If Blacks and Whites Don't Come Together as One, Then We Are Born to Suffer. This one is called Born to Suffer! Thank you. 
another song. This one is also taken from an album called Slave. This is the one called The Hand That Giveth.
check this out. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't know if you're going to understand it. My question to you is, listen to this. I want everybody to say this after me. We're gonna say, Lucky to the vibration. Lucky to the vibration. Come on, you got it. Lucky to the vibration. Come on, we hate apartheid vibration. Alright, thank you very much. And so right now, the song I'm going to give you is taken from the latest album called Together as One. This is a song called Truth in the World. All these years we were trying to find out the truth, but no one can tell us the truth. Because if you tell the truth, they call you a politician. So right now I'm going to give you this song called We Want Truth in the World. Truth in the world! I'm not a broken man, I'm not a 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 man,
Lucky Dubay, a live concert uh, in Paris in 1990. Lucky Dubay uh, from the the Republic of South Africa. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And according uh, to the Chinese government, uh, they are not interested in a conflict in Ukraine. However, at the same time, it does not believe that sanctions can help in resolving the crisis. That's according to Chinese State Counselor and Defense Minister Wei Songyi. 
Uh, he told this through Shangri-La Dialogue Security Forum in Singapore earlier today. A conflict or war are the last thing that China would want to see in Ukraine. At the same time, we do not believe that maximum pressure or sanctions can solve the problem. It may cause even more tensions and make the problem even worse, the official said in a speech broadcast live on YouTube. The government of China uh, supports the dialogue between Russia and Ukraine and hopes uh, that the United States and NATO would hold talks with Russia for a soonest uh, ceasefire, Fange told uh, the media agency. China uh, supports negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. We also hope that the U.S. and NATO would hold talks with Russia to create conditions for uh, the earliest ceasefire, he said. China has never provided any material support to Russia amid the crisis in Ukraine, uh, Fonge said. With regard uh, to the Ukrainian crisis, China has never provided any material support to Russia, he said. And on the African continent, uh, weeks after unconfirmed news regarding secret negotiations between Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, of uh, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front that were held supposedly in Nigeria, a new report indicates that the talks between the two parties are going to take place in Tanzania. Le Mans, a French news source, said in a report published on Thursday, uh, behind the scenes negotiations is organized uh, between the federal government and the TPLF forces. It is planned to take place at the end of June in Arusha, Tanzania. The source cited several African and Western diplomats to reports uh, that the discussion could start by the end of this month. Negotiation is said to be behind doors, and both parties will be represented by a team of five negotiators. The negotiations are aims a negotiated ceasefire, humanitarian deliveries, and resumption of social services in the Tigray region, including electricity and banking, among other things, constitute agenda items for the talks. According to Le Monde, the TPLF is to renounce claims over the Walcott area of Gondar, which is used to call, uh, which uh, it used to call Western Tigray. Lamont cited unnamed diplomatic sources in Addis Ababa to report that the Tigray leadership gives the impression of gradually abandoning its claims to Walcott. The TPLF, however, says that the report is mandacious. A message shared on social media, Yadashu Reda, the TPLF spokesperson, said, circled by a French newspaper, Lamont apparently claims, quoting unnamed Addis Ababa diplomats, that discrete talks will be held. Uh, between Tigray and Ethiopian authorities, and the former has abandoned their claims to Western Tigray. These are mendacious claims, of course. While we will officially address these claims soon, let me set the record straight on the question. It is the declared intention and position of the government of Tigray to reclaim every square inch of Tigray's territory by every possible means available, peaceful or otherwise, and soon. Earlier this week, uh, Press Secretary in the office of the Prime Minister, Beline Sayum, described reports of unconfirmed Palestine talks between Abiy Ahmed's government and the TPLS as disinformation by local media. However, former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo, who is now serving the African Union as Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, said there have been improvements 
in the indirect talks between the TPLF and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. Mr. Abbasanjo said that the talks is, are now better than what uh, it was uh, six months ago. When Ethiopia's Minister of Finance, uh, Ahmed Shadi, presented a draft budget for the next fiscal year at the Ethiopian Parliament, he said that one of the assumptions taken into consideration when preparing the budget is that there will be no war in northern Ethiopia. The Tigray region itself will be getting 12 billion Ethiopian burr from the budget. Since the TPLF is firmly administering the region, despite the fact that the Ethiopian parliament designated it as a terrorist organization, it will be administering the budget to be released uh, from uh, the federal government. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the tripartite mechanism adjourned a meeting for the various parties to the intra-Sudanese dialogue process that was initially scheduled for today after meeting with the FCC on yesterday. On Wednesday, June 8th, the mechanism launched the dialogue process with the participation of the military leaders and their supporters from the national consensus groups and allies of the former regime only. The boycott of the Forces for Freedom and Change dash hopes that the mechanism will bring an end to the political stalemate as the three envoys are now perceived as following military set guidelines. The meeting held between the FFC and the military component at the Saudi Embassy uh, with the participation of the United States Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and Saudi Ambassador on June 9 brought the mechanisms to postpone the resumption of this dialogue process. There will be no meeting tomorrow. Uh, this was said yesterday. As the trilateral mechanism has decided to postpone it uh, to mull over and assess uh, the situation in light of recent developments after the Saudi American facilitated a meeting on Thursday. Uh, Fadi El Qadi, Unitom's spokesman, uh, said in an email to the Sudan Tribune the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum said the first meeting between the two rivals meant to exchange views on how to solve the current political crisis, as well as on a process that leads to a democratic transition. The mechanism issued a statement on Saturday night, welcoming the meeting between the FFC and the military component without clearly announcing the postponement of the meeting that was supposed to be held uh, today. And uh, finally, uh, in other news, in the West African state of Mali, the leader of Mali's military transitional government uh, created on Friday night on a body in charge of writing a new constitution. Colonel Asimi Guaita will be in charge of choosing the members of this committee who have to present to him a draft version of the text within two months. The team will include a president, two rapporteurs, and experts will be able to consult all political parties and the civil society, including religious organizations and traditional authorities. Presidential decree has already been published in the official journal. This decision comes just days after the junta announced on June 6th it will stay in power for two additional years before organizing democratic elections in March of 2024. The West African country is facing sanctions from its regional partners, 
of the Economic Community of West African States, as it did not meet the deadline for elections to be held by the end of February earlier this year. Negotiations with the West African nations are still underway. However, the ECOWAS regional organization said it regretted the 24-month timetable. They had given Bamako 16 months maximum to transfer their power to a civilian entity in order to lift the sanctions. With this new decision, the ruling military wants to show it is trying to move fast, but it is yet to be seen if the drafting team will be able to meet the tight target of handing a copy over in just two months. And uh, finally, Rwanda is getting ready to greet the first migrants transferred uh, from the United Kingdom as their their flight should arrive next Tuesday. Uh, Given uh, the tension surrounding this uh, criticized deportation scheme, the hospital manager wants to be reassuring. This is not prison in a home like our home. Just we serve them, the migrants, as a hotel. In a hotel, the person will be free and everything they want. So when they want to go out of the hotel, no problem, stresses Ishmael Bakini, manager of the Hope Hostel. Kigali says London will provide up to 144 million euros for the plan and assist migrants will be quickly integrated into communities across the country. A last statement uh, by Leodanas Hakazimani agrees with Rwanda is a good country that loves Rwandans and foreigners. We welcome the migrants warmly, uh, saying the moto taxi driver. Uh, Their new homes have been prepared and they will be safe, but we are happy because others have come to seek shelter here. Rwanda is recognized for its hospitality. According to the United Nations figures, Rwanda uh, is hosting more than 127,000 refugees as of September last year. Almost half of them are children. The majority were Congolese, followed uh, by people from Burundi. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And... Um, Right now, we're going to take a musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Only you.
Detroit's own uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, the Queen of Soul, uh, during uh, the tune entitled Soul Serenade uh, from her first album with Atlantic Record entitled I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, which came out some 55 years ago uh, this year. And uh, right now we want to move into our, um, continue our Black Music Month uh, programming. Today, uh, first of all, we're going to look at the lifetime and contributions of Ruby Rosie, uh, who was, of course, a monumental uh, artistic figure uh, during uh, the first half of the 20th century. Uh, Ruby Pearl Elsey uh, was born on February the 20th, uh, 1908. She died on June 26th of 1943 here in the city of Detroit. She was an African-American operatic soprano as well as an actress. She, she appeared on stage and in film. She recorded albums before her death. In, in the 1930s and of course uh, Elsie was born in Pontotoc, uh, Mississippi uh, she was educated at Russ College and the Ohio State University and the Juilliard School of Music at Juilliard she was a pupil of Lucia Dunham her sister Money Elsie uh, just died in 2004 was a prominent educator after whom Amandi Elsie High School in Greenwood, Mississippi, is named. Uh, their mother, Emma Elsie, uh, died uh, in 1985 at the age of 98. 
She was a teacher and a prominent member of the Methodist Church, in whose memory the Mississippi Conference of the United Methodist Church presents an annual Emma K. Eldie Award. Uh, Ruby had two sisters, Amanda and Beatrice Wayne, and one brother, Robert. Uh, their father, Charlie, abandoned the family when Ruby uh, was only uh, five years old. And uh, we're going to go to a very important uh, audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Ruby Elsie. Uh, let's listen in. This program is based upon the book Black Diva of the 30s, The Life of Ruby Elsie by David E. Weaver, published by the University Press of Mississippi. Archival recordings for this program were also provided by Mr. Weaver. George Gershwin Memorial Concert. In this, the starlit setting of the Hollywood Bowl, Thousands of music lovers have gathered to honor the memory of this famous American composer. The world's great artists who have for many seasons past received tribute here, tonight join this vast audience to pay tribute. The tribute of friendship, appreciation, and of admiration for one man, George Gershwin. On September 8, 1937, a throng of people estimated at 22,000 pushed up Highland Avenue and streamed into the Hollywood Bowl, causing a traffic jam which brought traffic to a crawl in all directions. That crowd, plus scores more listening on CBS, affiliates in Canada, and around the world on shortwave, had gathered to honor the memory of George Gershwin, who had died two months earlier at the age of 38 after emergency surgery for a brain tumor. Among those performers on hand for the Gershwin Memorial Concert were Ann Brown, Todd Duncan, and Ruby Elsie, Gershwin's hand-picked choices for the roles of Bess, Porgy, and Serena in the original production of Porgy and Bess. And now the 40 members of the Hall Johnson Choir are being applauded as they take their places on the stage. This unusual musical organization is perhaps the best-known Negro choir in America today. They have traveled extensively over the United States and Europe, and have worked in motion pictures. The choir is arranged in semicircle in front of the orchestra and will be heard with the principals of the original New York production of Foggy and Bess, who were brought to Hollywood especially for this concert. Ruby Elsie sings, My Man's Gone Now. You're hearing one of the few surviving recordings of Ruby Elsie singing My Man's Gone Now, a performance at the 1937 memorial tribute to George Gershwin, broadcast on CBS Radio barely two months after Gershwin's death from a brain tumor. Elsie would live but six more years before she, too, would be gone. She was preparing for her opera debut in Verdi's Aida when she died suddenly in a Detroit hospital after surgery to remove a benign tumor. She was 35. 
What she could have gone on to accomplish is pure speculation, but what she achieved in her brief life was nothing short of miraculous. During those six years, she would perform in concert halls and nightclubs from coast to coast, be a headliner at Harlem's Apollo Theater, perform on NBC's Town Hall Tonight with host Fred Allen, and even perform for the Roosevelts in the White House. After her performance in the film Birth of the Blues with Bing Crosby and Mary Martin, critics would say, Ruby Elsey sings St. Louis blues like an angel from heaven. Ruby Elsey's splendid singing lifts the sequence far above the rest of a routine musical comedy. In this cast is Ruby Elsey, whose rendition of St. Louis blues will be remembered as long as the song will live. In November 1941, Ruby appeared on a nationwide broadcast from Hollywood to promote Birth of the Blues. Bing Crosby introduced her. Back in 1914, a couple of years before the original Dixieland Jazz Band gave New York the hot foot, a man down in Memphis was committing an assortment of notes to paper, possibly as blue a collection of chords, cadenzas, and cacophony as a breathless public has ever heard. The man's name was W.C. Handy, and he enjoys the notable distinction of being the first man ever to put blues music on paper. And though it wasn't his first blues tune, it was, and I guess it still is by far his greatest. We're privileged in our picture to have a truly great artist give this tune the kind of a performance that it deserves. And Ruby Elsie is with us again tonight to sing St. Louis Blues. Oh, 
Following the film's success, Crosby signed Ruby to the agency headed by his brother to represent her for future film work. praise for her remarkable abilities, it would be nearly 60 years before the spotlight would once again shine on this talented singer and performer. But who was Ruby Elsie? What was she like? And how in the early 1920s does a young black woman who spends her days helping her mama with washing and ironing for well-to-do white families, working in the garden, tending to her brothers and sisters, and dreaming of a singing career, escape the bonds of Jim Crow and get from Pontotoc, Mississippi, to stages in Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York City. Much of Ruby's strength and determination to, quote, sing in a big hall before a large group of people came from her mother, Emma, who had a, quote, iron will, boundless faith, and an almost superhuman capacity for hard work. Ruby saw what her mother endured to get them through rough times, that in the face of difficult obstacles, she worked harder and became more determined. So when her mother told her, Ruby, if being a singer is what you really want to do, then just keep praying and someday God will open the door for you to do it. That was the glimmer of hope Ruby needed. At the same time Ruby was dreaming of singing in a big hall, George Gershwin was developing the musical voice which would come to be loved by millions. As a youngster, George Gershwin was a tough kid who, as they might have said at the time, took nothing off a of nobody. Yet a few notes of music floating out of an open window was enough to grab young George's attention, transforming him from a young street smart kid to a boy totally enraptured by music. It was as if George Gershwin and Ruby Elsie, with, by most estimates, absolutely no chance of ever crossing paths, were being guided toward an intersection where their lives were destined to become permanently intertwined. George began music lessons in 1911, when he was 13 years old. By the time he was 15, he'd left school to become a Tin Pan Alley song plugger, all the while working to get his own music heard. At the same time, Ruby Elsie's musical talents were also developing, but in a completely different setting. Lord. 
Ruby was the first child of Emma and Charles Elsie, born in the small northern Mississippi town of Pontotoc. Emma sang soprano in the choir at McDonald Methodist Church. It wouldn't be long before Ruby would display her incredible gift in that small southern town. On a spring day in 1912, the choir had begun a hymn when suddenly a child's voice floated above all the others. Four-year-old Ruby was singing her heart out from the front pew. The congregation chuckled at first, but their laughter quickly subsided as they realized that the youngster had a voice with power and sweetness far beyond her years. By the end of the hymn, applause and shouts of hallelujah rang out. Ruby had made her debut. Ruby's life was typical for the black residents of the South. Her daddy cooked meals at a local mill, while her mama taught five grades at the Potatoc Colored School, worked in the cotton fields from the time school let out at noon until sunset. Then, after feeding her family and getting them to bed, Emma did laundry for several local white families into the wee hours of the morning. As Ruby grew up, she began to help her mom with the chores and caring for her brother and sisters. As she delivered laundry around town, Ruby sang.
It's 1992. George Gershwin bursts onto the music scene when Al Jolson records Swanee. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. 11-year-old Ruby is busy delivering laundry around Pontotoc, Mississippi, singing at the top of her lungs and, most likely, performing on stages all across the country in her mind. Waiting for me, praying for me. It seemed nothing was going to stand in Ruby's way in the quest of her dream. She was too young to attend Rust High School, which required their students to be at least 15 years old to enroll. And she had no money for tuition. But Ruby's mother, Emma, somehow convinced school officials to allow 11-year-old Ruby to attend on a work scholarship. Ruby blossomed at Rust, growing into a popular, beautiful young lady. She was, in the words of one fellow student, most noted for making eyes. It would be her eyes many of her classmates would notice first when she moved north to Columbus, Ohio. Madge Guthrie was a classmate of Ruby's at Ohio State. It was her eyes as much as her smile. It was a good smile, but she had sparkly eyes, and, and, and she was aware of everything, you know. You just had the, the impression that here is somebody who was right into the moment, always. Well, my soul got happy, and I stayed all day, on the journey now. a hundred people how Ruby Elsie wound up a student at Ohio State University, learning how to read music under the guidance of Royal Hughes, who was the head of OSU's fledgling music department. Some would say fate. Some would say coincidence or luck. Both Ruby and her mother, Emma, would be quick to tell you that nothing happens by accident. However you see it, Ruby's life was about to change. One person came into her life and changed it forever. It was Dr. McCracken, and he wasn't even in the music department, I don't think. I think that he just met her there, but he did recognize genius when he saw it and knew what to do about it. To just say, like most of us would, oh, it's too bad somebody doesn't do something about this woman, and he really did.
1927. Ruby's freshman year at Rust College. George Gershwin's Someone to Watch Over Me from the Broadway musical OK would climb to number two on the charts. That same year, Dr. Charles C. McCracken, professor of school administration at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, traveled to Rust College as part of a committee appointed to study Negro schools and colleges in the South. It was during a meeting with Dr. McCoy that Dr. McCracken first heard Ruby's voice. On a warm spring day in Mississippi, the windows were open and the men were in the midst of a meeting. As usual, Ruby was singing. As her voice floated through the open office window, Dr. McCracken found it increasingly difficult to concentrate, and his companion on the trip, Dr. Walter C. John, from the Office of Education in Washington, D.C., finally threw down his pencil and said, Dr. McCoy, either we make that girl stop singing or bring her in here to sing for us. When she was asked if she minded if someone listened in on her rehearsal, her smile and warmth struck an immediate chord with Dr. McCracken. Dr. McCracken's son, Ed, was five years old when Ruby arrived in Columbus and recalls his dad's reaction the first time he met Ruby. There are people who walk in and have a command appearance. and They're just the dominant feature in the room. 
and Ruby had that in her domain and as a person. And when she walked in, she was just somebody special. It was in her eyes. I mean, you, you knew that she was a loving person, that she liked everybody unless they did something terrible, and then she usually accommodate that. She had that uh, sense of humor that just, just was unquenchable. I mean, it just made people love her. C.C. McCracken would spend the rest of the evening learning about Ruby's background, how she was doing in school, her mother's determination that Ruby get an education, and most of all, her deep desire to become a singer. Neither man felt they had the connections or the money to help Ruby realize her dream. What a shame, they thought, that nothing could be done to help such a gifted young lady. It appeared Ruby Elsie was destined to suffer the same fate as many young blacks in the South, unfulfilled dreams. But C.C. McCracken was a resourceful man. Dr. McCracken knew Ruby deserved the chance to realize her dreams. He just wasn't exactly sure how to go about helping her. When Dr. McCracken asked Ruby if she'd be interested in going north to study and develop her voice, if he could arrange it, she was understandably cautious, but it was decided Ruby would talk to her mother about it, and Dr. McCracken would begin laying the groundwork for Ruby Elsie to attend Ohio State University. If the thought of a poor but gifted black girl living under the cloud of Jim Crow, being handpicked by George Gershwin, was beyond what people could imagine, who would ever have thought a Harvard-educated professor would become her mentor and her biggest promoter? And how in the world would she get to Columbus? A black person was not going to be allowed to travel alone by train. But there was a way. David Weaver, author of Ruby Elsie, Black Diva of the 30s, tells the story. Fortunately, one of the women who was the headmistress at Russ College, Ella Becker, was from Mansfield, Ohio, and she was coming to spend the summer with her family. How is she going to travel? In the Deep South, blacks could not travel on trains. The one way that blacks were able to travel was posing as Ella Becker's maid. So she carried her baggage to the thing and uh, made it through the Deep South and made it up here to uh, Columbus, Ohio in June of 1927. Just one of many seemingly insurmountable odds Dr. McCracken helped Ruby overcome. Anne Brown, who would later be cast in the role of Bess in the original production of Porgy and Bess, had a different experience. I experienced difficulties, too, but not exactly of the same kind. Ruby was obviously black. I was not obviously black, and so I uh, very often did what people in those days called passing without actually meaning to do so either. But if I bought a ticket on a train to Texas and uh, they gave me a seat, I went and took it. And only if someone came up and recognized my background uh, and then reported, I use that word in quotation marks, uh, to someone at the head of the train, they might come and ask me to please get out of that train or go to another car or sit in the back or something like that. So Ruby now has a way to get to the Ohio State campus and has a place to stay. Now Dr. McCracken has to hope that other members of the administration see the same promise that he saw in Ruby. There were a number of questions to be answered. Could she be admitted to the university? 
How was her voice? Dr. McCracken wanted to have Ruby tested by Dr. Royal Hughes. The two men lived across the street from one another on East Lane Avenue. So the morning after Ruby arrived in Columbus, Dr. Hughes crossed Lane Avenue to hear Ruby sing. In Dr. Hughes's mind, Ruby already had one strike against her. She didn't actually read music. She had uh, an innate ear, um, a, an instinct for music, and of course, blessed with a natural voice, but she had had no training, no musical training even. And Dr. Hughes could have just said, you know, I don't have time to mess with this. That's right, no. Dr. McCracken's wife, who was a very fine accompanist, Cleo McCracken, accompanied Ruby on this Saturday morning. Ruby dresses in her Rust College uniform, which is very much like a little sailor suit, a pleated skirt, a jumper, and, and a little uh, navy tie. And proceeds to sing two spirituals, which, of course, I'm sure he was expecting, you know, okay. But then when she announces that her third song is going to be the shadow song from Meyerbeer's Dinora, the smile left his face, and he, he whispered to Dr. McCracken, there's no way a girl who's had no training, who can't even read music, can possibly sing a song that difficult. Ruby proceeded to sing. Hughes was so excited, he had Mrs. McCracken get up, and he proceeded to accompany Ruby for the rest of the time and ask her to do these things. He was floored. She had learned the way that many other singers learn through rote, through listening. Oh. 
Columbus, Ohio was a very active musical town in the late 20s, with orchestras, opera companies, and concert series taking place regularly. Royal Hughes proceeded to call upon 30 of the most accomplished musicians in Columbus to hear Ruby perform in his home the next evening. After Ruby performed her brief program, a particular musician made a beeline for Dr. Hughes. There was one woman in particular, a violinist with not the Columbus Symphony that we have today, but an orchestra which back then was known also as the Columbus Symphony Orchestra. This woman was the principal violinist and was known to be very critical in her opinion of other musicians. And McCracken watched her very carefully as she was listening, and when the concert finished, McCracken said this woman sprung up immediately, made a beeline straight to me, and I was bracing myself to hear this barrage of whatever she was going to say. And the woman pumped his hand vigorously and said, whatever you do, don't send that girl back to Mississippi. She has an extraordinary voice and the personality to sell herself to any audience. The career of Ruby Elsie, soprano, had begun in the living room of Dr. Royal Hughes that June evening in 1927. Sixteen years later, to the day, Ruby would give her final public performance of Porgy and Bess. The table was set. Ruby began the process of learning formally the art and craft of using her innate musical gifts. She graduated in three years with a Bachelor of Science degree in education with a major in music, finishing at the head of her class in the Department of Music. Ruby was now a college graduate. During the summer of 1930, she gave highly successful concerts at Methodist camps and conferences in Wisconsin and New York before returning to Mississippi, where she performed six more times. 
Rust College headmistress Emma Becker was thrilled to see Ruby return to teach. But Ruby's mother Emma had said that Mississippi was too small for Ruby, that Ruby had earned the right to share her talent with the world. Those words would soon prove prophetic. While Ruby was giving concerts after her graduation, Dr. McCracken was still working hard on her behalf. Barely a week after Ruby graduated, Dr. McCracken was in Chicago for an educational conference, also attended by Edwin Embry of the Julius Rosenwald Fund. David Weaver. The Julius Rosenwald Fund, if anyone knows anything at all about the history of the arts for black Americans, the Rosenwald Fund in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was an important organization which gave scholarships and fellowships to many gifted black performers to do advanced studies. They funded Marian Anderson for her first trip to Europe, mm -hmm. which led to, of course, to her great career that she had there and her discovery at the Salzburg Festival in 1935 by uh, Toscanini. Ruby was given a scholarship sight unseen by the president of the Rosewald Fund simply on Dr. McCracken's recommendation. He happened to meet this gentleman at an educational conference in Chicago. He said, I'd like to meet with you and talk about this, this young black woman who's just graduated from, from Ohio State. And the president said, well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just so busy. I'm, the president could see that Dr. McCracken was quite deflated. And he said, I'll give you five minutes to tell me about this girl here and now. And Dr. McCracken said, I took a deep breath and proceeded to tell Ruby's entire story with two minutes to spare. <laughs> <laughs> on that alone, George Emery, the president of the Rosenwald Fund, said, we'll give her $1,200 to go abroad. And Dr. McCracken said, well, I really think she's not ready for Europe, but I think she would be benefit by being in a good school. And Dr. Emery said, send her to Juilliard. The Rosenwald Fund will give her the $1,200 to go to Juilliard. Juilliard had already been set for the year. Dr. McCracken was able to set a special edition on October the 6th, the day before they were starting classes in 1930. Ruby was given a special audition before Frank Damrosch, um, mm -hmm. who was the president of Julia at that time. And, of course, many people know Walter Damrosch was one of the great conductors of that era. And that was uh, Frank Damrosch's brother. So Dr. Damrosch and, and a select group of people from Juilliard heard Ruby and admitted her. She started school the next day at Juilliard. Ruby's arrival at Juilliard coincided with one of the most artistically creative periods in American history, known now as the Harlem Renaissance. Within a week of her arrival in the Big Apple, Ruby was singing with the prestigious Rosamond Johnson Choir on Broadway. Ruby would meet three people who would figure prominently in her life while studying at Juilliard. Arthur Kaplan, a young pianist who would accompany her many times, including in a performance for Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House. Another was Ann Wiggins Brown, who, along with Ruby, Todd Duncan, and John W. Bubbles, would be handpicked by George Gershwin to perform the roles of Bess, Serena, Porgy, and Sport and Life in his groundbreaking opera, Porgy and Bess. 
Most important to her in her time at Juilliard was Lucia Dunham, who would call Ruby Elsie and Ann Brown her prized pupils. While Ruby studied at Juilliard with Lucia Dunham, she was also singing in the Rosamond Johnson Choir in the Broadway production of Brown Buddies and later Fast and Furious, which saw Ruby performing with some of the top black talent of the day and also afforded her her first solo on Broadway. She would soon make her first national radio appearance with Rosamond Johnson on a radio program called Parade of the States. The time would come when radio appearances were commonplace for Ruby, but right now, she was just wondering what she would do after graduation from Juilliard. Funding sources were hard to come by in the wake of the stock market crash a few years before. But Dr. Frank Damrosch, who had sat on the panel which originally auditioned and accepted Ruby into Juilliard, now came to Ruby with the news that she had received a faculty scholarship which would allow her to do postgraduate studies at Juilliard. In the summer of 1933, Rosamond Johnson was offered a contract to arrange and conduct a choir for the musical sequences in a film starring Paul Robeson. Needing an assistant music director, Johnson called upon Ruby to help him prepare for the film Emperor Jones. This film would have a huge impact on Ruby's career. Hired by the producers to write the screenplay, DeBose Hayward. DeBose Hayward and producer Dudley Murphy still needed to fill the small role of Brutus Jones' girlfriend in Emperor Jones. As they watched Ruby, they realized she had both the sweetness and strength the part needed. All of a sudden, she was Paul Robeson's co-star. While the film is today considered a classic, it was neither the film nor her role in it that most profited Ruby. It was her friendship with DeBose Hayward. DeBose Hayward suggested to Gershwin he knew someone perfect for the small but important role of Clara. At the enthusiastic recommendation of both Hayward and Rosamond Johnson, Gershwin agreed to hear the 26-year-old Ruby sing. This is what Gershwin heard.
Gershwin was stunned. Ruby had several more songs ready, but Gershwin had heard all he needed. George Gershwin had found not Clara, but Serena. Not long after, Gershwin himself introduced the stars of his new opera in this rare recording. Now we have a song by uh, Miss Ruby Elsie in the second act, scene one, called My Man is Gone Now. I'm sorry, it's in scene two, scene two, act one.
September 30, 1935, Porgy and Bess opened to a rousing ovation. Curtain calls lasted for nearly half an hour. Ann Brown. Well, it was very exciting, and uh, when we stood on the stage after the performance was finished, the applause from the audience was deafening. It was deafening. Ruby had arrived. Critics called her performance of My Man's Gone Now a masterpiece of its kind. They said she distills heartbreak from this extraordinary piece of music. Porgy and Bess would propel Ruby onto the national stage with radio appearances on the magic key of RCA, the Mutual Broadcasting System, and two live all-Gershwin broadcasts from Lewison Stadium at City College in New York. She would wow critics with her New York recital, perform at the Apollo Theater, and even sign on for an engagement at the Kit Kat Club. One of the most notable radio appearances was on Town Hall Tonight with Fred Allen. And now, uh, may I present Miss Ruby Elsie. Miss Elsie, I deem it quite an honor to welcome you here to our frayed microphone this evening. I've never had the pleasure of hearing you sing until today. I missed you in Porgy and Bess, and then uh, I went by, uh, I intended to go to see the show, but I kept putting it off, and finally the guild got up on its high horse and just said, either you come over here, or we're closing the show up. <laughs> and I couldn't get over there, and they went ahead with the, you know how the guild is. <laughs> and that is why, when the guild and I pass these days, we never nod. If you ever see me passing the guild, you will notice the guild especially doesn't nod. But, uh, Miss Elsie, I, uh, uh, you want to tell us something about yourself? You were, uh, besides Porgy and Bess, you were, uh, you've also graduated from the Juilliard School, haven't you? Yes, I did. I came up from, uh, I came from Ohio State here. I finished Ohio State in that 1930. Uh-huh. I went there on a scholarship given to me by Dr. C.C. McCracken. At Ohio State? Uh-huh. And I left, I went to Ohio State from Russ College. I worked my way through Russ College. If you ever would happen to come to my house, you'd notice I wouldn't eat on tablecloths because that's what I did, wash tablecloths to get so, through <laughs> So now you're cured, huh? Yeah, I eat on the oilcloth. <laughs> 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 well, I don't know. It would be terrible to, 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 to come back in later life as a spirit and come in your house with a tablecloth on, and there you are. You I wouldn't pay any attention to me. start washing. <laughs> But I, uh, you are, you've also sung with Mr. Robeson, too, haven't you? Well, I played opposite him in uh, The Emperor Jones. Emperor Jones here picture. in this country? Picture, yes. Oh, in the picture. Yes, the picture. Mr. Ro- Robeson's in Europe now, isn't yes, he? he is. I read about him occasionally, gadding about Russia in one place or another <laughs> with his <laughs> earmuffs on. And uh, I also wanted to ask you, one of the boys told me that you this week are appearing at the Apollo Theater in uh, Harlem. Is that yes, right? On 125th Street. Right. You, going, you have another show there tonight, another too? Another show tonight. Well, then we better just get going. What are you going to sing for us tonight? Summertime from Porgy and Bess. Summertime from Porgy and Bess. Thank you. <laughs> Porgy and Bess would be revived in the late 30s for a short run on the West Coast before extreme weather stranded the company in San Francisco, putting a halt to the planned tour and ruining the producer financially. Finally, in 1932, a third attempt to mount what would be a shortened and much less expensive production of Porgy and Bess and to take it on tour would succeed. 
Ruby Elsie would be cast in the role of Serena for all three productions. The first one, of course, launched her performing career. The third one would mark the untimely ending of it. Ruby began to feel irritable and moody during the tour, and her stamina was dropping. By the time the company reached Detroit, she was ready to see a doctor. Ruby had a benign uterine tumor, which would need to be removed. Ruby was not willing to drop out of the tour, so she decided to postpone surgery until the show finished its run. The tour wrapped up in Denver, Saturday, June 19, 1943. Emma, Ruby's husband Jack, and Ruby set out for Detroit, where the operation could finally be performed, and Ruby hoped she would get her energy back. As they prepared to take her to the operating room the next morning, it was fitting that she sang. She vocalized a little bit, gave her mama a smile, and hopped up on the gurney to head to the operating room. Two hours later, Ruby was gone. News of Ruby's death spread quickly in major newspapers across the country and in the entertainment industry publication known as Variety, reaching her Porgy and Bess castmates, her hometown, and friends across the country. Emma had notified the McCracken family immediately, but they were traveling and would not know of Ruby's death until after the funeral services had been held. It was a loss Dr. McCracken would never get over. In one publication, the editors wrote, her aspect of the race question was one of the sanest and most sincere we have ever known. In a gesture of respect that reflected that sentiment, Ruby Elsie was the first black person buried in the then whites-only central portion of Pontotoc City Cemetery, less than 50 yards from the front gate. At her funeral service at the McDonald Methodist Church in Pontotoc, blacks and whites alike filled the church, overflowing into the churchyard. As it had been all of her life, Ruby Elsie was bringing people of both races together in harmony. Now in the church where she had first raised her incredible God-given voice in praise, Ruby Elsie had come home again. Welcome back, and uh, that was a documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Ruby Elsie. Uh, her 
monumental ascendancy uh, during uh, the 1920s and her operatic uh, career during the 1930s and early 1940s. And are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, June 12th, uh, 2022? We're broadcasting live from our studios here in downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our program. Uh, This is Black Music Month, and throughout the entire month of June, uh, we have programming uh, looking at the history, uh, legacy, and traditions uh, of uh, African music uh, in the United States and indeed uh, throughout the world. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with our next segment uh, dealing uh, with none other than Odetta. Let's listen to the music of Odetta Holmes. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music and voice of Odetta, and uh, this is uh, Black Music Month, and of course, we've been reviewing the contributions of many leading uh, African and African-American artists. Odetta Holmes uh, was born on December 31st of 1930. She made her transition on December 2nd of 2008. 
popularly known as Odetta. Uh, she was an African-American singer, an actress, guitarist, lyricist, and civil and human rights activist, often referred to as the voice of the civil rights movement. Uh, her musical repertoire consisted largely of uh, folk music, uh, blues, jazz, as well as spirituals, an important figure in the American uh, folk music revival of the 1950s and 1960s. She influenced many of the key figures of the folk revival of that time, including Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, uh, Mavis Staples, and uh, Janis Joplin. In 2011, uh, Time magazine included her recording Take This Hammer on its list of the 100 greatest popular songs stating that Rosa Parks was her number one fan and Martin Luther King Jr. called her the queen of American folk music. Odetta was born Odetta Holmes uh, in Birmingham, Alabama in the United States. Her father, Reuben Holmes, uh, had died when she was young. And in 1937, she and her mother, uh, Flora Sanders, moved to Los Angeles. Uh, when Flora remarried a man called Zydok Lois, Odetta took her stepfather's last name. In 1940, Odetta's uh, teacher noticed her vocal talents. A teacher told my mother that I had a voice that maybe I should study, she recalled. But I myself didn't have anything to measure it by. She began operatic training at the age of 13. After attending Belmont High School, she studied music at Los Angeles City College, supporting herself as a domestic worker. After attending Belmont High School, she studied music at Los Angeles City College, supporting herself as a domestic worker. Flora had hoped to see her daughter follow in the footsteps of Marian Anderson, but Odetta doubted a large African-American girl like herself would ever perform at the Metropolitan Opera. In 1944, uh, she made her professional debut in musical theater as an ensemble member for four years with the Hollywood Turnabout Puppet Theater, working alongside Elsa Lanchester. In 1949, she joined the National Touring Company of the musical Finian's Rainbow. While on tour with Finian's Rainbow, Odetta fell in uh, with an enthusiastic group of balladeers in San Francisco, and after 1950, she concentrated on folk singing. Made her name playing at the Blue Angel nightclub in New York City and uh, the Hungry Eye in San Francisco. At the Ten Angel in 1954, also in San Francisco, Odetta recorded Odetta and Larry with Larry Moore for Fantasy Records. A solo career followed uh, with Odetta's Sings, uh, Ballads, and Blues. Uh, that was released in 1956. And At the Gate of the Horn, uh, that was released in 1957. Odetta Sings Folk Songs was one of the best-selling folk albums released in 1963. In 1959, she appeared on Tonight uh, with Belafonte, a nationally televised special. She sang Waterboy, in a duet uh, with Belafonte, there's a hole in my bucket. In 1961, Munz King called her the, quote, queen of American folk music, unquote. Also in 1961, the duo, uh, Harry Belafonte and Odetta, 
made number 32 in the UK singles chart with the song There's a Hole in the Bucket. She is remembered for her performance at the March on Washington in August of 1963. It was a huge civil rights demonstration at which she sang, Oh, Freedom. She described her role in the civil rights movement as, quote, one of the privates in a very big army, unquote. Broadening uh, her musical scope, Odetta used uh, band arrangements on several albums rather than playing alone. She released music of a more jazz style on albums like Odetta and the Blues, released in 1962, and Odetta in 1967. She gave a remarkable performance in 1968 at the Woody Guthrie Memorial Concert. Odetta acted in several films during this period, including Cinerama Holiday, uh, released in 1955, a cinematic production of William Faulkner's Sanctuary uh, that uh, came out in 1961, and uh, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman uh, from 1974. It's a made-for-television movie. In 1961, she appeared in an episode of the TV series Half Gun Will Travel, playing the wife of a man sentenced to hang, the hanging of Aaron Gibbs. She married twice, first to Dan Gordon, and then, after their divorce, to Gary Sheed. Her second marriage also ended in divorce. The blues singer-guitarist Louisiana Red was a former companion of hers. In May of 1975, she appeared on public television's Say Brother program performing Give Me Your Hand in the studio. She spoke about her spirituality, the music tradition from which she drew, and her involvement uh, in civil rights struggles. In 1976, Odetta performed in the U.S. uh, Bicentennial Opera Be Glad Then, America, uh, by John LaMontagne as the muse for America with Donald Graham, Richard Lewis, and the Penn State University Choir and the Pittsburgh Symphony. The production was directed by Sarah Caldwell, who was the director of the Opera Company of Boston at the time. In 1982, Odetta was an artist-in-residence at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Odetta released two albums in the 20-year period from 1977 to 1997. Moving on in 1987, a new version of Christmas Spirituals produced by Rachel Farrow in 1988. Beginning in 1998, she returned to recording and touring. The new CD, Ella, Uh, recorded live and dedicated to her friend Ella Fitzgerald upon hearing of her death before walking on stage, uh, was released in 1998 on Silverwood Records, uh, followed by three releases on MC Records in partnership uh, with uh, pianist and arranger-producer Seth Farber and record producer Mark Carpinian. These include uh, Blues Everywhere I Go, a 2000 Grammy-nominated blues jazz band tribute album to the great lady blues singers of the 1920s and 1930s, Looking for a Home, uh, which uh, was released in 2002, the W.C. Handy Award-nominated band tribute to Lead Belly, and the 2007 Grammy-nominated Gonna Let It Shine, a live album of gospel and spiritual songs supported by Seth Farber, 
and the Holmes Brothers. Uh, these recordings and active touring led to guest appearances on 14 uh, new albums by other artists between 1999 and 2006, and the re-release of 45 old Odetta albums and compilation appearances. And these are just uh, some of the uh, accomplishments uh, of Odetta Holmes. We want to listen to a uh, interview, rare archival interview with uh, Odetta uh, that was done uh, several years ago, uh, where she talks about her uh, artistic development and as well as her uh, musical career. Uh, let's listen to this interview. I started pretending with music uh-huh. uh, before leaving Alabama. I've always headed towards music somehow or other. I think I was born to learn whatever I have to learn through music. And I would sit at the piano and bang, bang, bang until my aunt got a headache. And, <laughs> and then in Los Angeles, I've always been a pack rat and I was recycling before they even got the name together. I found a music book and a pencil that was about that long, the ones you have to bite off the wood to get to And I walked around scribbling in this book, pretending I was writing music. I was somewhere around 11, 12, when uh, a teacher told my mother that she might want to give me voice lessons. So my mother took me to a voice teacher. The teacher said, maybe wait till she's 13 because the body is still developing. Well, now my mother, um, when she was growing up, wanted to take the violin. And uh, her choir teacher told her mother that she should take voice lessons. So my mother decided she's going to pull a coup. Her parents want her to take voice lessons. So she said she'll take the voice lessons so she could have her violin lessons. <laughs> it was one of the world's unsuccessful coups. <laughs> so as a result of that, she was fully and thoroughly in back of uh, giving me the voice lessons. When she couldn't pay for them anymore, uh, she went to the, uh, there was a turnabout theater in Beverly Hills. She worked there. And we knew the guys, uh, the Yale puppeteers. And uh, we would go over on Saturdays and help her finish work early so we could go to the farmer's market downtown. And um, so that we all knew the guy. It was like a family. Yeah. And she told the guys she couldn't pay for my lessons anymore. And so... Uh, they had her bring me, and I sang for them. And Harry Burnett, the, the uh, puppeteer, uh, started uh, sponsoring my voice lessons until I got out of high school and, and working, and I could afford my own lessons. Uh, so it was um, predestined, I guess. It was just... And you had a passion for this, and you knew it at an early uh, age. Uh, yeah. It was my middle name. It was my first name. (laughs) (laughs) I see. That's pretty passionate. (laughs) And what did you learn to play an instrument around the same time? No, no. No. Uh, So at 13, I started uh, with the voice lessons. 
And at the age of 18, at the um, uh, Greek Theater in Los Angeles, in the summertime, was the production of uh, Finian's Rainbow. And I auditioned for the chorus, and I got into the chorus. The next year, uh, we did it again, and that was in Los Angeles at the Greek Theater. And in San Francisco, they had, um, at the Opera House, um, oh dear, I'll, I'll find it, Guys and Dolls. Yes. So we finished our our gigs there, and then we exchanged places. I was 19, and first time away from home. Uh-oh. And sophisticated. <laughs> oh, funny. Big time, huh? <laughs> Two days. You know? <laughs> 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 yes. Well, I had gone to school, junior high school, with a woman by the name of Joanne Shannis. Uh, I hung out with Joanne. She told me about, or took me and her, we heard a little folk music here, a little folk music there. Lost track of each other. But when I got back to, uh, when I got up to San Francisco, she heard on the grapevine I was in, so they found me. She by this time was married to uh, um, uh, Paul Mapes. So they found me and I started hanging out with them. Now, I started hanging out with what I think was the last generation of the Bohemians. <laughs> After that, we came, became Beats and this and that. But it's the same. It's yes. it another name. And uh, the uh, bars had closed in San Francisco at 2. So we would leave the bar. Oh, which was really romantic. I'm 19 now. <laughs> Very grown up. It had, it had sawdust on the floor. <laughs> I couldn't stand that stuff now for nothing. New, but it was romantic oh, in those yes. days. Okay. So when the, the uh, bar closed, we went up to Joe and uh, Paul's uh, apartment. And it was romantic. It was the top floor, and it was the beams coming down here and coming down here. <laughs> and um, people would sit around playing guitars and singing these songs all night long. And we had, we had uh, Gallo wine. Isn't it amazing what has <laughs> happened to Gallo? Yes. <laughs> well, in those days, I just look at a glass of wine, and, and, I, and I was gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I call, that's what they call a cheap date. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, evidently, the grandchildren have brought Gallo up to... Uh, quite something in, in the wine the industry. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> what I understand is that when there was a drought in, in Europe, first of all, the vines in the States came from Europe. So when there was a drought, Europe came over here and, and got a little snippet here and a little snippet there, took it back. So all it is is in the making of the wine, <laughs> yes. not where it comes from. That's right. Okay. Um, so uh, they were singing songs in these gatherings that had to do with my concerns, my fury, my hate, my resentment, and... From the wounds. For the wounds. 
along with the wounds was Hollywood's presentation of us as blacks. So uh, there was uh, the portrayal of us as blacks in the Hollywood films. And um, I hark back now to when I was in grammar school and the feeling that if it were in a book, they couldn't put it in the book if it were not true. And I remember reading in history book a historian who said that the slaves were happy and singing all the time. I remember my objecting to serfdom and anything that was uh, where there were people taking advantage of other people. And then this man told me that my people were happy and singing all the time. I believed it. So in San Francisco, I'm hearing these songs, and the songs that got to me the deepest were the prison work songs. I could sing those songs, and no one would know where I began and the prisoner ended, right? We weren't in a place where we could discuss and talk about anything. And we certainly wouldn't say, I hate you, and I hate me, and I'm, you know, okay. So it was an excellent purging thing for me. And I remember when I first started, uh, I would sing these prison songs, and people would jump up screaming. And it was mostly to shuck that negative that I, that I put out there, you know. And um, it got to a point where doing the music actually healed me. Uh, and after a while, I couldn't do the prison songs anymore. I was not happy acting them out. Before I was the prisoner and do, singing it, and John Henry was the first song that I got up and walked out of my door. I mean, years later, someone requested John Henry. I started singing it. I was very unhappy with it and just said, well, he's gone. The very first time that you worked as a professional. Actually, it wasn't a professional. I would be amateur at this time. Okay. It was um, in Los Angeles. I got back to Los Angeles from San Francisco. And it's amazing to me. It may have happened to you also. When you get interested in something, here come guides. You just don't know how that works. You bless it, but you don't know how it works. And that's a good thing, too. And so a woman loaned me a guitar. She had her husband and her children and her house, and she wasn't going to use it anymore. So she showed me some chords, C, G, and Easy F, <laughs> and gave me a capo. Therefore, I could go three keys even and uh, as I hung around people doing folk music word got out you know and there were people who were putting on uh, benefits in order to make enough money to mimeograph something that, that they needed to put out the word on when I came around the folk music area we were taking around petitions to save Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Uh -huh. oh. yes. So I've always been around the political 
and, and uh, yeah, and um, so I'm not quite sure I have answered your question. Yes, you have. Okay, yes, right. that's fine. What is baby? That's that was my first guitar. <laughs> Where did you tour after you left San Francisco? You were there working for a while. You said in Phineas Rainbow. And then in Los Angeles. And then in Los Angeles. And singing for um, for benefits. Yes. And then visiting Joe Mapes yes. and her daughter, my goddaughter. And she took me by the Hungry Eye. Yes. And she, she pulled a trick on me and had me sing there for Enrico Benducci. Oh, yes. And he offered <laughs> me a job. Yes. So I went back to Los Angeles got my stuff together, and uh, the man who was working there then, who will remain nameless, said that I couldn't work there except on his night off. But oh. that's all right. I, I, I worked on Wednesdays. In the Hungry Eye? Hungry Eye. Oh. And uh, I didn't belong to the union. Mm-hmm. Now, those catch-22s, you got to work to get money to join the union, but you can't, you can't join the union if you don't. Have the money. So um, I snuck it and work it and and uh, did it on Wednesdays, and um, had moved up to San Francisco. And Joe talked to um, Peggy Tolk Watkins, who owned the Tin Angel. And I was singing at a place called the Cable Car Village. Oh. <laughs> and there was it was a jazz place, and one day. Uh, one evening, uh, the oh, the man who was in charge of all of this was a slippery tongue devil. I mean, he was <laughs> clever. He was brilliant with his language and his cons. Right? <laughs> I like that description. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, he said that the band that was there, decided they didn't want to do another set, so I'd have to do another set. So I said, okay, you pay me what you pay them, and I'll do another set. All right. Well, now, I had been being brought up around unionism. You know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Yes. So one night, Joe Mapes brought Peggy Toke Watkins by. Peggy and I talked, and she made out the whole deal. She says, now, if if I think you'll work at the Ten Ten Angel, I'll buy you a drink when you finish. So I sang, and I came back, and went up over to her. She says, why don't you come to the Ten, ten Angel to get your drink? Oh. And that was the beginning <laughs> that. was of the that. beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know that uh, Paul Mapes, didn't he own the Gate of Horn, or he... No, no. No, no. No, no. No. That was Albert Grossman, and uh-huh. that was in Chicago. Uh-huh, because I thought I, that you had performed at the Gate of Horn as well, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. As a matter of fact, when I first, the, the grapevine was fantastic in those days. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I was quite large then. I think I was pregnant for about nine years. <laughs> the, the length of an <laughs> But no more. <laughs> you want to start? <laughs> but word got around pretty fast, okay? You know yes, right yes, we're okay. And um, I got a message from a... Albert Grossman in Chicago, a place called the Gate of Horn. So I went to Chicago, and outside of uh, 
the Gate of Horn, was standing uh, Big Bill Brunsey, <laughs> who lived there in Chicago, and Josh White, oh, who yeah. had just finished a gig there. And they wanted to make sure their little sister was going to get along okay. Uh, besides Josh White and Big Bill Brunsey, will you talk about some of the other people who helped you in those early years of your career? Were there any others you would like to mention? Well, I just met people uh, somehow or other. I think my, I think my guardian angel, who was my maternal grandmother, her name is Mama Lizzie, did all the work. I <laughs> <laughs> did all of the work. <laughs> and then the doors opened for you to perform at places like the Newport Folk Festival, I understand. And Carnegie Hall. You recorded 16 records in the 60s, is that accurate? I guess so. Did you ever compose any music during that time? Um, I've always been shy of composing. Because uh -huh. I might compose something and sing it and somebody sees something about me that I haven't seen yet. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And I admire people who can just Fill it out there. I really do. Um, so I'm really a song interpreter. They kind of choose me. There are songs that I would love to do, but I can't seem to find them. They don't seem <laughs> to fit. And there's one song I remember hearing uh, in Joe and Paul's apartment, and uh, I was homesick. And it's called I'm My Mother's Child, and I haven't been able to find it yet. Oh. And then there are songs, some songs, I start, and they fight themselves. And there was once, um, uh, what's his name? Larry Moore and I, we would do duets together. And one song we practiced, and it had a tendency to go fast. Yeah. And then you have to have a tendency to go slow. Mm -hmm. So I said to Larry, okay, when we do the song, if it's going too fast, I'll wink my le left eye. <laughs> and if it's going too fast, I'll wink my right eye. <laughs> and it was going to something, and I forgot which eye is that. <laughs> well, that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, Adele, you are known to do research about folk songs. Mm -hmm. Will you talk a little bit about that? Why you feel it's important to do that? I researched the researchers. That was the important work. Yes, that's Because good. they kept our history there for us. My uh, area and my assignment is to bring as much as this together as possible, bringing it together, mixing it with what is going on now. Uh, similar things called differently. You know, it's like downsizing means you have lost your job, honey. Yes, that's right. Plain and simple. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. When you came out with Odetta and the Blues in 1962, many of your purest folk fans took offense to your change. I heard about that. In style, but you... I didn't know. I, didn't, I didn't know, know. What was your, well, you didn't know, but what, how I'm would you respond it. to that now? I'm glad I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I don't, I don't know how you sit and discuss with someone um, something that you feel you want and must do. Yes. I, I don't know how to excuse myself, nor would I want to. Because you also, throughout your career, you have done all kinds of songs, if I remember. Mm -hmm. And you recorded an album of Bob Dylan's songs in 1965. Mm -hmm. Did Mr. Dylan help you with the album? Actually, we threw him out of the uh, recording <laughs> session. <laughs> and what was that? Well, it was at RCA Victor. And uh, we had run into each other a few times. I didn't really know him, nor do I really know him now. And... Uh, but he was your protege, I understand. Oh, well, he, he took what he needed from me and went on with his with uh -huh. stuff. Okay. Yes, yes. So uh, he came by uh, RCA with his entourage. And I said, oh, no. I'm not going to have the writers sit up here telling me I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> he says, well, can I correct some words? And he went through the words. He had... Um, given the, the uh, publisher tapes, and they copied down the words, transcribed the words. And then those were the words that I got. So there were a few words that, uh, or some, many, maybe, that were not really fully understood, so he corrected those words. And I said, now you got to get out. <laughs> and he, he understood. Of course yeah. he understood. <laughs> Dada, have you ever performed with the symp uh, symphony? Yes. Yes, which ones? The Boston Symphony, one. And that one was with um, Voice Choir of Harlem. Oh. <laughs> and Kathleen Battle. Oh, fantastic. Um, there were several symphonies quite some years ago. Well, we traveled around to maybe three symphonies whose names I don't yes. remember. Were you ever in an opera? Yes. Which one? <laughs> uh, uh, Be Glad Then America, and it was for the centennial. And um, John Lamontagne uh, uh, took the words of the fathers of the country, speeches and whatever, and uh, made an opera out of it. And Caldwell, what is her first name? So? Sarah Caldwell yes. was the conductor. And it was at the University of um, Pennsylvania. And they, I remember they had a choir over here and a choir over there. And I played the, um, the muse of something. <laughs> a muse is a good word for you. <laughs> the muse of liberty. Liberty. <laughs> right. Your original musical training was European classical, as you said before, and more suited to an operatic style, would you say that? What? When you were in college and studying European classical music, were you was that more suited to an operatic style? Uh, you could say that. However, you could say that. Yes. I had a teacher mm -hmm. who said that all he could do was teach someone how to stay out of the way of their throat and just produce the sound. Now the way they came out was the lore and the tradition of whatever field they wanted to go into. If they wanted to be a pop singer, that's what they would take on. Opera singer, that's what they would take on. So anything you wanted to be was really 
in your imagination and what you were driving towards. But when you were in the opera and you played the Muse of Liberty, did you still feel that your passion was folk? The spotlight isn't on it, but it's very much alive. And uh, an awful lot of what is happening today is that those who have been influenced by folk music are writing their own things. They say, influenced by folk music as opposed to Tin Pan Alley or opera or whatever, whatever, yeah. Do you think that the young folk performers are singing or playing from their hearts? Are they the interpreters that you say that you are of of people's history? There's an awful lot of me, 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 my, my, mine, as if anybody gives a damn about what they, their coffee was cold. Yeah. No, but they'll, they'll catch up. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from an interview with uh, Odetta Holmes, uh, properly known as Odetta. And uh, we also uh, heard a track uh, entitled Gallows Pole uh, by Odetta. Uh, prior to the interview. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, this uh, episode of the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, June 12th, 2022. Uh, We have been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, to listen to it again, uh, to share with other potential listeners, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The uh, programs can be shared uh, by uh, copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, the Links can also be copied and pasted onto blogs and websites, as well as through social media networks, such as Facebook uh, and Twitter. If you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we've been uh, focusing uh, for the uh, last uh, four episodes on Black Music Month, a tradition that goes back uh, the commemoration of Black Music Month to the late 1970s. And we will continue uh, with more uh, episodes uh, on uh, the history of African music in the United States and around the world uh, for the remainder of our episodes uh, during the month of August. We're going to close out uh, our program um, today uh, with uh, more music from Odetta Holmes, uh, popularly known as Odetta. And this is uh, taken from a soundtrack of a television concert uh, in Belgium in 1964. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
buggy went a courtin', he did ride on. Frog went a courtin', he did ride on. A sword of pistol by his side on.
No. 